He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went on ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they looked, took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered five thousand men. Here ends the reading. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. So in the last few weeks of our series on Mark, we have been looking at the passages of Jesus preaching to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, where the neighbors, his neighbors and, and, and the people there just couldn't seem to accept that Jesus, is, Jesus was somebody of authority to teach on God's kingdom. And then from this place of being rejected by his hometown, Jesus invites his 12 disciples to go out in pairs away from Jesus, away from the person who has all the answers, the person who seems super confident in everything, to step away from Jesus and go to these different villages to meet up with different people, move into somebody's home based on their hospitality, to bless that family, to share with that family the good news of God's kingdom, to help heal people and to cast out darkness. And in between the commissioning of his disciples being sent out into the villages and into this passage we just read now where Jesus fed the 5,000, there's this weird passage we looked at last week. And it was the passage of Herod and the choice that he made to murder John the Baptist and then to parade John the Baptist's head on a platter in front of his entire palace full of dinner guests. And it was a picture of Herod being more concerned with his own reputation that he succumbed to the peer pressure he was experiencing and approved of the murder of John the Baptist. So where is Mark taking us? Because it seems like kind of a weird way of measuring it and putting it together. Why does Mark set up his gospel like this with a passage that doesn't even mention Jesus in this whole thing of John the Baptist? 
I think Mark does this because he wants to compare two kingdoms against each other. The entire part portion of Mark that we've read so far is rooted and based on the kingdom of God. And so we see Herod's kingdom that contains lavish parties where the wealthy and the popular rub shoulders together. Herod's kingdom might be Jewish in that Herod was a Jew and that it was in a Jewish territory, but yet they are not guided by God's law or God's commands. Instead, this kingdom, Herod's kingdom, is guided by Rome. It's puppeted by corruption and greed. Herod's kingdom was marked by making a name for oneself, by getting ahead no matter what the cost. And we see Herod's kingdom juxtaposed with God's kingdom. God's kingdom was marked by the marginalized people who were starving for meaning and hope. God's kingdom was guided by bestowing worth and value on women and children and the poor. It was revealed by restoring the sinner and healing the sick to be put back into their community. The story of Herod and his palace banquet of greed and fear is juxtaposed with the story of Jesus and his hillside banquet of inclusion and compassion. They are put right next to each other to compare what God's kingdom looks like and what the world's kingdom looks like. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 people is, only, is, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels besides Christ's resurrection from the dead. If it's recorded in all four Gospels, we know that it is a very important teaching. And it begins with Jesus desiring a quiet place where he and his disciples could debrief and process their time apart from each other. And I bet that, the, that they couldn't even wait, the disciples couldn't wait to share their highs and lows of what it has been for however long, maybe a month apart, what has happened during that time. They had stories of people who turned their lives back to God. There were stories of people running them out of the town, I'm sure. There were probably stories of like the really weird healing that happened, and they're like, I don't even know how to process this. Can you help me, Jesus? But it says in the text that so many people kept coming in and interrupting their time of debrief. So many people were full of need and interrupting that the disciples and Jesus didn't have a chance to eat anything. And so... In order to process, they get in a boat to go to a more quiet place. But the crowd follows them. Now, the crowd doesn't get on a boat to follow them, but they kind of see where that boat is heading, and they just, like, hightail it over there. And this crowd is huge already, but I'm sure it grows in number as they pick up stragglers on the way and stampede to wherever the boat might end up as they wait for Jesus. Because they will do anything to get close to him. I remember when my kids were little, and any of you who have had kids remember the time when your kids were toddlers, there was never alone time. It was constant in your life. They were so needy. You never had time to eat anything because the only thing that you could eat was whatever was left over on their plate while you were trying to wash the dishes and make sure no one killed themselves. They had a million questions and no answer ever satisfied them. They would cry for no reason and hated getting in the car to go anywhere, but also hated getting out of the car to go anywhere else. It was this, they couldn't figure out what they wanted. And I remember my kids were 
ages five, three, and two. There was a lot of little ones, and they were all in car seats, and we had this smaller Subaru. We have a bigger one now, but it was smaller, and I would put them all in. I'd strap them in, and I'd have like, on the door to get it all closed, and all the kids would go, to the side because the door would kind of hit them. And, I, and they were all crying usually because they were upset that they had to be in their car seats, but they were all strapped in so they couldn't get out. And I would shut that door, and I would walk around to the other side, and it felt like a mini vacation. It was so quiet. I could hear the birds singing and the breeze on my face, and I was very present to that moment of silence. And in that small, tiny, 30-second window, I would recenter myself. I would breathe deeply. I would remind myself how much I loved my children before I opened that door and went back into the car. But those moments were moments of blissful silence because we have to remind ourselves, we have to get away from the noise and the need to be reminded of how much we do love those people around us. And I wonder if that boat ride for Jesus and his disciples was just what they needed to recenter themselves for a minute, to be reminded of how much God loves everyone, even the most needy of us. But this isn't three needy, hungry toddlers. This is 5,000 men hanging around a hillside. Most of them probably had their families with them, so we're looking at about 15,000 people. It's quite a crowd. And when it's brought to Jesus' attention that it's well past lunchtime, Jesus is sympathetic to the crowd of people. And there's not much for the disciples to find, to share, it says. Five loaves of barley bread. Barley bread was a food for the poor, for the lower class. Two fish, probably not much larger than sardines. It would be pulpified into some sort of a jelly paste that they would put onto the hard bread to make the bread easier to eat, easier to swallow. And I'm guessing that those people in the crowd, including the disciples, wouldn't be too stoked about eating peasant food, no matter how hungry they were. But Jesus says this interesting thing before he blesses the food. He asks the disciples to break the crowd up into areas of 50 or 100 groups. Groups of 50 or 100. And whatever happens next, Jesus wants this crowd to experience it in community. Every person went from one in a huge crowd to one in an intimate circle. And Jesus breaks the bread. He blesses it. He gives thanks, and he delivers the bread, much like we do every week here with communion. There are two ways that most scholars assume and interpret this passage. The first one is seeing it as a miraculous replication of bread and fish. And we're not totally sure about the distribution process. Perhaps Jesus passed it along from person to person, but 15,000 people, it would take quite some time to pass it along to one person and the next and the next. Or maybe he had one of those air guns at baseball games where he just like shot out, instead of t-shirts being shot out, he shot out sardines and bread into the crowd. But I don't think that the distribution of the food is the point of the story. I think the miracle that everyone had enough is the point. Not one person went away hungry. 
Scholars believe that this event happened near Passover, was when people from near and far were traveling towards Jerusalem for their very holy festival. And it makes sense, considering how large the size of the crowd was. People who are traveling a certain distance would have had to have packed food for a day or two of their travel. They would have had enough for themselves and for their family members, and yet we hear that they were hungry. This is a diverse crowd made up of middle class and wealthy and poor people, but they found their commonality in the moment because of Jesus. They were gathered there because they were expectant and they were curious about what God was up to through this very charismatic and prophetic teacher. They were desperate enough to skip a meal to be fed on his words. And I wonder if this miracle of multiplying fishes and loaves was actually more for the disciples than it was for the crowd. The disciples have just finished their first mission. They were kept from eating and processing fully because the crowd was like a sheep without shepherd. And the disciples were already full. They were already filled with Christ's wisdom, so much so that it may have become something normal or something rote for them. They were becoming like the church people who believed they had nothing left to learn because they were being because they already had and heard all of it already. In this story, the crowd that we hear of, unlike the other gospel writings, the crowd is not actually hungry because they were being fed by Christ's words and Christ's compassion. The crowd was starving for meaning, and Jesus was providing all that they needed from God's kingdom. But the disciples, they were becoming, they were on the verge of becoming like Herod, where there was a sense of boredom in the message and something more important and more satisfying was probably elsewhere, like lunch somewhere else, not where they were. So I want to read part of this passage again. It says in 35, By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. And I can imagine these disciples walking around this crowd while Jesus was teaching, and they're quietly asking if anyone has any extra food to spare. They're asking for themselves because they are starving. Everyone else was being fed on Christ's words. And I can imagine people kind of shaking their heads no and giving them the side eye and, and then focusing back on Jesus until someone eventually gives up their peasant food. And I wonder what this was like for the disciples, to see this mixture of classes in a crowd and only end up with peasant food. Now, as I mentioned before, that next part is so strategic where Jesus has the disciples split up the crowd into groups of 50 or 100, where, where you are no longer anonymous, but you are actually part of a smaller community. You have the chance to rub elbows with your neighbors. You, you look each other in the eye, and you can see the personhood in the other person. 
You might have nothing in common with the person sitting next to you besides Jesus. And you might find yourself opening up that basket of food you brought for yourself and your family and begin to share it with your new friends you just met. And as the loaves and the fishes continue to be miraculously multiplied, you might just contribute to this miracle by sharing what you have with your new community. The miracle wasn't just about loaves and fishes being changed. The miracle was about people being changed. The miracle isn't that it happened once and they wrote about it then. The miracle is that people begin to see that God's kingdom economy looks like a rural hillside where loaves and fishes and sharing provided so much that there were 12 baskets left over. 12 baskets for 12 disciples. Maybe this miracle truly was for the disciples to see how they were all provided for beyond their wildest dreams. Maybe Jesus used this miracle not for the crowd who would come and go, but for the dedicated disciples who might be too used to Jesus that they might end up not hungry for him. They might be so focused on the mission of healing and casting out darkness and sharing about God's kingdom, they might miss the joy of their first love. They might forget to delight in Jesus because there's more important work to do. Friends, there is nothing more important in your life or ministry than simply delighting in Jesus. There is nothing more critically vital to your life, no greater responsibility than the deep and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Like a frazzled mother who shuts the car door and walks slowly around to have every second blissful quietness. I am in that moment delighting in Jesus Christ. That 30-second walk was a meal of joy in knowing my identity and my worth and my strength as a mother comes from the love of Jesus, not from the obedience of my children. The good ministry of church and family and parenting, the good ministry of your career or volunteering at the Arcata House or making the meals ministry or anything else you find yourself doing must come second to delighting in Christ. If you are not finding your fulfillment in Jesus, if you are not being fed with Christ and by Christ, if you are not resting in the assurance of God's love for you, I fear you may find yourself quickly depleted and burnt out. You may find yourself hungry for something else somewhere else. And I've seen many pastors and I've seen many church leaders and just church people in general working so hard to keep everything moving forward. They've all but neglected and forgotten their first love, that joy of Christ. The text we read says how the people all ate and were satisfied. May we find our satisfaction in Jesus the one who satisfies long after our meal has been finished. 
The communion meal is one that we come to week after week, to not just to be filled with some bread and juice, but to be reminded of the Christ that really does fill us and fulfill us. Just as Christ took that bread and he gave thanks for it and he blessed it, I mean, what was he thanking anything for? It was hard, horrible bread of peasant food. And yet he gave thanks for it. He broke it and he distributed it. And not one person had to put up their credentials before they were fed. No one had to say, well, this is why I should be fed. This is how I made it. These are the ways I'm worthy. It was broken and distributed without any credentials necessary. And that is what we do here. We practice open communion. You don't need to tell me all of the things that you've done right this week or all the ways that you've gone wrong. We just simply come forward knowing that Christ's grace is is big enough and good enough and great enough for all of us. This table is open for all of us. The bread represents Christ's body broken. The juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of anything that keeps us from God's kingdom. We practice open communion, as I said. The ushers will dismiss you by rows, and you can come forward. I will give you a piece of the bread, and you can dip it in the juice. And when we consume all of that, what Christ represents into our lives, we get to live out that in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your, for your good word. Lord, we thank you for the delight we have in you, Jesus. When things get overwhelming and busy, when we feel distracted about needing to go somewhere else or escaping elsewhere, may we be reminded of the joy we have in you. May we just simply breathe in your love and your grace and breathe out your gratitude. We thank you. We praise you. It is for your glory we pray these things. Amen.